So we're in a series called Naked Spirituality. It's, it's based around a book our friend Brian McLaren wrote about 10 years ago. And it's about the seasons of the spiritual life and the words that help us process the season of a spiritual life. And so we began the series in a season called Simplicity, which is the season of spring, which is a season of growth and excitement. It's a season where everything's new. And it's also a season where we often get trapped in some, some binaries, right? Some, some black and white thinking. We get trapped in some either or thinking. And now we have shifted into the season of complexity, which is the season of summer, and in the season of complexity, we move beyond those dualisms. We start realizing that there's actually shades of gray and that that isn't an act of unfaithfulness. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean you're wishy-washy. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that you're starting to see that, that the whole either-or uh, concept actually doesn't capture the human experience, that sometimes, often, many times, it's a both-and experience. And so last week we looked at a word, uh, the word sorry. Did anybody practice that word at all this week? Um, okay, so it had no effect on you. Great. Um, so today I want to move to the word help. And if sorry, uh, to quote Sir Elton, if sorry seems to be the hardest word, help might be the second hardest word, right? Because help implies need. Help implies uh, an ask, a, a request. Um, and what happens in human development, and I have you know, five kids and I've seen this over and over again, there's a certain stage, like when you're born, you are completely dependent on the people around you for everything. Um, and then there's something that happens, and it happens at different ages for different kids, um, but there's something that happens where suddenly you go from being completely dependent on your, your parent, your, your, your provider, some, whoever's caring for you, and suddenly you want to do everything yourself. And that is the stage we call annoying because it would be just so much easier if you let me do it, right? Right? And so kids suddenly, they want to, you know, I see this with my kids. They want to do everything themselves. They want to brush their hair themselves. They, it's all like, let me do it. I don't need your help. Um, and when that happens, of course, they they make messes and they, things don't happen exactly as they should. But that's a really important part of human development, right? This sort of beginning to embrace this independence of learning to do things for yourself and learning that you can do things, that you're, you're not completely dependent all the time on the people around you to give you everything you need. Uh, and so there's a natural part of human development where we learn, I can do some things. Like I can do hard things. I can do complicated things. Um, and as they get older and older, that sense of independence grows. Like a, a little while ago, we have a seventh grader. And when school started, we started dropping him off at the school for football games where he would go in by himself. And then we would show up later to pick him up. And that is awful. <laughs> there is nothing about it good. There's nothing about it I like. But yet there's a thing, right, where he's suddenly now, I remember, I remember turning 16 and getting my driver's license and pulling away from the house, the thing I don't even want to think about or else this will turn into a major therapy session for dad uh, with my kids. But that moment when you pull away in the car for the first time and your parents aren't with you, and you're like, I'm free, I, I can do whatever I want. I can, well, within reason. I mean, if, you, if I were to have gotten arrested or pulled over, it would have been bad, but I can do, you know, I have a sense of I'm now my own person in a way I wasn't my own person before. That's a great thing, to be able to begin to develop some sense of independence. But one of the things that often happens to us uh, in the human experience is we, we start becoming ingrained with this idea that if we need help, if we need assistance, 
that it's, it, it shows something is wrong with us, that we aren't as far along, we aren't as developed, we aren't as mature, we aren't as adult, we aren't as whatever as everybody around us. So I, I wanna explore this word help today, and I wanna try to frame it in maybe a little bit of a different way so that we perhaps are willing to ask for it a little more. And so let's begin with this. What is our resistance to the word help? And this will sort of echo a little bit of what we talked about last week. I think one of the major resistances in us, resistances, Resist, resistance eye in us around the word help is this idea of vulnerability because to ask for help shows a sense of vulnerability. It means that I actually don't know everything. Now, in the days before Apple Maps or Waze, um, back when you used to have to print off a piece of the internet to go somewhere, and then in days before that, when you had to have a book that was about this big called an atlas, how many of you ever navigated with one of those? I still don't know how you did it. <laughs> you look at a line on the road and you're like, I'm on that line right now. I'm just gonna keep following this line till I get to that line and I'm gonna go left on, left on that line. I'm a little directionally challenged, right? But there was this time when there was this sort of stereotype about a specific group of people who didn't wanna stop and ask for directions. We'll just leave open who that group was. We all know. And what, what, what is the deal with that? Why, why, why why would we not want to stop and ask for directions? Well, if I have to stop to ask for directions, it means people will think I don't know where I'm going. Also, you don't know where you're going. <laughs> so it's not like they would be believing a lie about you. You are lost and you need help, right? But there's this sense of vulnerability. And as we become aware of others' perceptions, of we become aware of others' evaluations of us, that idea of asking for help, well, Gosh, they're asking for help. That must mean they're pretty weak. They're asking for help. That must mean they're not mature. They should have planned ahead more. Oh, they're asking for help. That must mean that they don't have all of their stuff together. So there's this vulnerability. And I think that there's something so profoundly grounded in that early story and that creation myth in Genesis where the first humans are, are naked and unashamed and then naked and ashamed and they're hiding because to show other people your vulnerability puts you at great risk because others' opinions of us and their evaluations of us loom large in our consciousness. How many of you have ever gotten a really, really positive email? How many of you have ever gotten a compliment from somebody? How, how many of you have gotten like 15 of those and then one person says something negative? <laughs> And what does that do? It begins to seep in, right? Because you're vulnerable. It's almost like that you're, we're walking around wearing this armor. And if we ask for help, if we show some sense of vulnerability, we're showing people the places where the, the armor doesn't meet up quite right and we're vulnerable and they can harm us. And so pretending like we can't do it all, or if we admit we can't do it all, then suddenly people are gonna think we can't do it all. And if they think we can't do it all, we must be something wrong, right? Something must be wrong with us. And then vulnerability it ties into, I think one of our other resistances is this feeling of insufficiency. I've told you before, like if I'm trying to, if I try to fix something that's broken, my insufficiency radar goes through the roof, right? So we pretend like we don't need help because if we ask somebody for help, that means we can't do it. And if we can't do it, that means we must be deficient. And if we're deficient, that means we're not good enough. I mean, th think about all the times maybe that you could have benefited from help, but that sense of 
if I ask, they're going to think I'm not enough. And so we put on masks and we put on all these layers to try to project a sense of enoughness. Because in our religious, for many of us, not all of us, some of you have not had this experience. And so just mourn with us right now. And I describe this, but this, you enter into the world and you're immediately told you're broken and there's something wrong with you. And even if you get it fixed by God, that there's still something wrong with you. And so we learn to cover up and we learn to wear masks and we learn to layer on the armor because if we begin to show that actually maybe we could benefit from somebody else coming alongside us, that that somehow speaks about not just, oh, well, they needed help in this. No, no, it speaks to the very core of who we are. If you're not self-sufficient, if you can't do everything, then you are somehow not enough. And then I think another resistance, and this all bleeds together and so, so that it's hard to separate out, but this idea of self, I'm calling, I think I'm making up this word probably, self-madeism. Um, but you know exactly what I mean, don't you? This idea of I did it all myself. You ever heard people talk about that? I did it all myself. I built a multi-billion dollar company and all I had was a couple million dollar loan from my father, right? Like <laughs> it was all me. The, 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 the bootstraps myth, right? Like I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Well, who gave you bootstraps? Like, did you just come into the world? Like, I don't know what these are, but I'm gonna put them on my feet. Like, no, you didn't, you didn't. But there's this myth that we are, self, we are self-contained, we can be self-sustaining, that we need nothing from no one. We talked about worship a few weeks ago. We talked about this idea that probably there's a good, at least hypothetically, maybe, maybe it's a good guess that humans began to have this need to somehow do something because they realized that they're dependent, that we are dependent on forces outside of us, right? And, and as we're like, for example, as we're, we're sitting here, there are folks in Florida whose lives have been completely upended in the last week. And they have been definitely at the forefront of our minds uh, over the last week. But we are all dependent and fall victim to forces and situations that exist outside of us. And sometimes those things benefit us, right? It's like, it's like when you're on the road and you're driving and you're speeding because the person in front of you is speeding and you're just hoping they get caught first. And so you're like drafting with them. Sometimes it works in your favor and then sometimes it doesn't. But regardless, every single one of us we are dependent on all sorts of things that happen that are outside of our control and are outside of our abilities. How many of you in this room or online have ever been born? <laughs> Good. That's the first 100%, right? We all entered this world and there were all sorts of things that happened before us that played into how we entered the world and what that experience was like and what our current experience is like. And uh, that's true for everybody. So nobody is self-made. Nobody is an island. Nobody is dependent on no one or nothing else. We all, whether we know it or not, have, are dependent on outside forces, other people, other things. There is no such thing. But wanting to keep up that myth and to, to keep that idea going that we are self-made makes us resistant to ask for help because I never needed help from anybody and my dad never needed help from anybody and his dad never needed help from anybody. I, I just think they were lying to you if they told you that because we all need help from other people. It's just true. So if we can acknowledge that there are things in us that make us want to hide, there are things in us that make us want to not feel vulnerable with other people because vulnerability is a risk. Admitting that you are not 
completely, totally um, isolated and sufficient on, uh, without help from other people that you, you, you kind of need somebody else that doesn't, if we can just acknowledge that that doesn't make you weak and it doesn't make you unworthy and it doesn't make you insufficient, then we can begin to do something really interesting in the world. But it begins by acknowledging that who you are right now, you are, you are completely and totally enough. You are. Now, I'm, you're in process too, right? You're in process. There are things that you're working on. There are things that are going to change. You're, you're going to learn. You're going to grow. There'll be maturity in places in your life. When that, and you'll, you'll suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I didn't respond the way I used to to that. What is, is this maturity? I think it is, right? You're going to have those moments. But even though you have lots of growing to do, and even though there are probably things about you that you want to change or that your partner wants to change or that your friends wish would change, that your family wishes, like all of those things exist. And even in all of that, you are enough. You just are. So let's begin there. You're enough and you also need help. You're enough and you're not self-made. You're enough, you're totally sufficient, and also you need other people. And so if we just let that be the base layer of our conversation, where might we go and what might help mean? Because I think when we ask help, ask for help, when we admit, I need assistance, it unlocks some things that are really good for us as human beings. And just like when we're kids and we're learning and growing and we're becoming more and more um, uh, independent, that's a great thing, but also it can lead us to this place where we think we don't need anybody, right? And so what might help do for us? If we begin to ask for help when we need it, if we begin to say, um, I, I can't do this on my own, what does it do? I think one, help creates this understanding and this sense of interdependence, that, that actually independence is not the ultimate human goal. Interdependence is the goal. Recognizing that we need one another. So I think there's this universal human experience that happens when you're unloading the groceries from your car. How many of you, regardless of what you have in the trunk, you're going to try to get it all by yourself on the first trip? Can we just ask why? It, it's, it's like you're paying per trip to unload it. Like they're gonna charge me extra if I don't get all this out at once. Or, or, or like somehow it makes you look really tough and strong and like you have 20 people standing around you. Like, can I get them eggs? Can I help with the milk? You're like, no. And you have all these bags and the circulation is being cut off to your hands and you're dropping things and you're like, this is fine. And you're carrying it all into the house at one time. Like, what is that? What is that? And we're at the stage now at our house where we bring groceries home and the kids want to help carry things in, which means you should have bought double because this is something's going to get broken. And yet being able to say, I could get, just for my own self, I could carry all these in at once, but I'm going to let them help. Um, what, what is that? that? That to me is, this. <laughs> it's just emblematic of what we're trying to deal with here, which is that there's this sense in us that we, we just got to do it all on our own. When in reality, having help means you still make few, very few trips to the trunk. It's just, you can still fill your fingers. And that's a really good thing. <laughs> but this idea of interdependence, that, that somehow 
we are all on this rock that's spinning. And if you think about that long enough, like this thing is turning and moving and we aren't just all flying around all the time. Wow, gravity, right? But we are all on this rock that's spinning and twisting and moving throughout space and we all share it together. And somehow we end up with this sense that really we're on our own. When whatever happens on this planet, this is why I don't understand people who just don't care about like climate change. Because whatever happens to this planet is going to happen to everyone. And yes, right now we're, and, and moving forward, there will be dramatic difference between how climate change impacts the rich and the poor. But eventually if this planet is unsustainable, everybody loses. We are deeply, deeply connected to one another, whether we know it or not. Life is a domino effect. And that what I do and what you do impacts way more people around us than we can begin to imagine. We are interdependent whether we want to acknowledge it or not. So I I want to read a couple texts from the book of Acts, but I want to begin by saying, join me in not idealizing the early church. Because there's this thing that happens in Christian communities when we read the book of Acts where people are like, we need to be a first century church. You don't want that. They did not have air conditioning. (laughs) Number one. And number two, like if you actually begin reading the New Testament, Paul's genuine letters, for example, what you realize, the communities you're idealizing were just trying to figure out how a diverse group of people could be in relationship with each other. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't easy. What we see in the book of Acts is sort of like, let's see these things work on their best day. But on their not best day, you had rich people going to celebrate communion, Eucharist meal, and eating and drinking all of the good food and drink and being drunk and the poor showing up and having nothing, right? Paul addresses that. You find these communities that are just struggling to sort out how do we human together in ways that do not devalue and dehumanize one another. I think we're still sorting through that as a species. And I think we're still sorting through that as a religious tradition. So acknowledging, acknowledging what we're about to read, it's like their best day. It's when everything worked right. So two texts. One is from the book of Acts chapter two. This is after, there's this moment in the book of Acts called the day of Pentecost where the people sort of experience the spirit of God in a radical way and it's transformative for them. And as a result, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals and to prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. And the Lord added to their community those who were being saved. So what is that early church image? It's a group of people who realize we are somehow deeply dependent on one another. So we're going to share our food. We're going to share our lives. We're going, to real, we're, we're going to understand that if we have something and somebody else has a need, that we are as interdependent human beings with them. It is our invitation, privilege, and responsibility to help meet those needs because no one in the community should starve and no one in the community should be without. And so that's what we're going to do. That, that's the, the ethos, at least on the best day of this early Christian community. Our founding pastor, Stan Mitchell, often say the early church is the infant, not the archetype, right? It's the beginning point. And, and if you've ever watched some, a toddler learn to walk, they fall down a lot and they don't get it exactly right. 
And that's okay. They're growing and they're learning. But on their best days, in their best little snapshots, there's this idea that they really cared for one another well. They understood their interdependence. In Acts chapter 4, Again, it says the community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of, I don't know why that's the, <laughs> nah, <laughs> this is mine, um, about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them. There were no needy persons among them. And there are some translations that will connect these. They were bearing such powerful witness to the resurrection of Jesus that nobody was in need. Like it almost connects the powerful witness to being, here's how we say that Jesus is still alive and at work among us. Because there are no needy people in our community because we take care of one another. Those who own properties or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds from the sales and place them in the care under the authority of the apostles so that it was distributed to everyone who had need. Interdependence. Belonging to one another. And I understand, I bet for people, some people in that community, maybe they had a strong sense of independence and they thought, nobody should be helping me. I should be doing this on my own. And yet, in this community, the response would have been, no, you shouldn't. This is not yours to carry alone. You're part of us. We are part of you. We sort this stuff out together. Nobody walks alone in this community. So interdependence, and I think... Help also creates this opportunity for participation or collaboration. We help one another, right? There's a give and take. Um, So you need something today, so I help you today. Maybe I'll need something tomorrow, you help me tomorrow. It's an invitation to, to not be a spectator to the whole thing, but to get involved and to see needs around you and also to be willing to acknowledge your own needs. Maybe you're the person everybody always talks to. Do you, in your friend group, do you have that person? Or in your family, the person everybody always unloads on and talks to, and you're like, they're just always there for me. Somebody eventually needs to be there for them. Because that's a lot to carry, right? And it's a gift, and it's something people show up willingly to do. And yet, if you're that person, and your thing is like, I just, I just bear everybody else's burdens. I don't need any help. I'm just going to go ahead and call that false. You do. You do need help. There's this great line in the book of Galatians where Paul is writing to this community, and he says, bear one another's burdens, and in doing so, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say go to church. He doesn't say believe in God. He doesn't say believe in a specific atonement theory. He says, when you bear one another's burdens, you fulfill what Jesus was actually inviting you into. And so there's this invitation to participation and collaboration. It's really incredible what we can do together. We can do way more together than we can ever do apart. We can do, you ever studied ants? Annoying little creatures. They do a ton of stuff. They can move stuff that is way out, way larger and heavier than they are because they organize themselves and they get together and they're like, we're going to move this thing that's way bigger than us. That's science for you. <laughs> but I actually think that's what happens in communities like this. When, when we share our burdens with each other, when, we, when we're there for each other, when we work together, 
mean, it's really daunting when you look at all the problems of the world. We've already talked about climate change, right? We could talk about misogyny. We could talk about white supremacy and racism. We could talk about homophobia. We could talk about white Christian nationalism. All of those are major, major problems. And if you're like me, sometimes you feel, and I'm a, I'm a big, big guy, but sometimes when I'm thinking about those problems, I feel really, really, really small. Anybody else? And I'm like, what in the world can I do to move that mountain? But then you realize, oh, I'm not, it's not my job to move that mountain. It, it, it's my job to participate with a group of people. And, and maybe we're moving it slowly. Maybe we're all just, we're starting at the bottom and we're just trying to knock the whole thing down. But it's not going to happen when I'm by myself. It's, it's going to happen when I'm in community with others. And, and, and maybe sometimes not even where everybody all sees everything the same way, but we all realize there's a mountain that needs to be moved. And there's a, a pickaxe in my hand and they've got one and they've got one. So let's do this together. It's an invitation to participation. In the book of Ephesians, there's this line, um, which is talking about sort of the transformed experience. And it says, um, so if you've been stealing, stop and, and go do something productive and share with those who have need, right? It's the story of Zacchaeus where this guy has been a chief tax collector and he's mistreated his neighbors and he's taken way too much from them and he's been dishonest and he's been a, a, a no good cheat. And at the end, he has this encounter with Jesus and he says, you know what? I'm gonna give half my stuff away and if I've harmed anybody, I'm gonna go back around and I'm gonna make sure they have what they need because repentance and repair or repentance and reparation always go together. You can't ultimately have repentance if you're not seeking to repair. And there's this experience that, and I just think about that story of Zacchaeus. And the only thing we really think about this guy is like, he was kind of short. It, but in reality, what does he, when he gives away, when he divests himself of his ill-gotten gains, think about what that would do in that community. Think about if oil executives decided to divest some of the money they'd gotten from the de degradation of the planet and put it back into environmental stewardship and sustainability. What would that do? That's repentance. And that's something that can absolutely be transformative. And, and so our, our thought process is not just what can I do? What can I do? It's, no, what, if I bring all the unique garbled up mess of me into a community and everybody else does that too, what can we do together? What mountains can we move together? What healing can we bring to the world together? I think ultimately help leads to expansion we, because we can do more together. And when you and I link arms, our abilities and our powers and our resources have just immediately been expanded. I'm no longer an isolated me. It's us. Anybody in here ever done any weightlifting? So my first experience was I had a class. We had a, I don't know if they still do this, but in my high school, we had a class called weight training. And I took it because I thought it'd be easy. Like there are, no, there are no exams in there. You don't have to learn anything. You're just going to go lift stuff. And we had this one particular exercise called skull busters. And it was to work on your triceps where you take the bar and you put whatever weight you can handle on it. And, and you're bringing it and you're laying, you're laying down and you're bringing it down and you're like bringing it right to your forehead and you're pushing it back up, right? This is the exercise. And, and everybody had a partner because you couldn't really trust that, you know. And so a, a friend of mine was, was my spotter and I'm doing this and like halfway through my set, my, my, they just give out. And, and I, I'm like, where's he at? 
I'm like, Andy, where'd you go? And Andy's not there. Andy has gone. Was Andy raptured? We don't know. (laughs) We just know Andy is not there. And slowly the bar goes down and pops me in the forehead. I was not happy with Andy at all. But there is something like, you see people do things and they have people spotting them. They have people coming alongside them because even when you're strong and tough, sometimes you need help pushing that last bit because sometimes you get tired and sometimes you want to give out. And so sometimes you just need somebody to help bear the weight with you because suddenly your power then has expanded. When we work together, it enables us to do things. When you bring your wisdom and your experience and your creativity and your resource and everything that makes you the enough human being you are, and you link it together with other people moving in the same direction, caring about the same vision, it creates potential and possibility that would not exist if you were completely isolated and on your own, staring at that mountain and wondering how in the world you're going to begin to even make a dent in the problem. And I'll tell you, I think maybe most importantly, what help does, help creates a sense of belonging. You ever, you ever worked with somebody before on something that you cared about? Like maybe, maybe you were picking up trash and it was the middle, this is, I've done this a couple of times where you're going to pick up trash and it's in the middle of July and you're not happy about it, but you signed up. So here you are. And suddenly you find yourself on the road with somebody and you're talking and you're exchanging stories and the time's going by quicker and you're making your community more beautiful. And something just happens where you've created a sense of belonging that did not exist before. I hope you feel that sense of belonging in this community because that is the core of who we are. We are a group of people who desperately want you to know that you belong. Not that you belong once you get all the theology of it cleared up and you know it all. Not, not that you belong once you've uh, you know, been here six times. Not that you belong once you've done all the things we ask you to do. That right now, if you want to belong, you belong. But there's something about help. Because here's the thing. Belonging means that you have a desire to belong. Because right? belonging is a two-way street. We can say you belong and you can be like, I don't want to belong with you. And that's cool. That's cool. But, but the, the longing to belong in some ways is, is help. It's, it's saying help. I, I realize that to be human and to be isolated is, is not good. Actually, in the Genesis one creation story, there's this, like God creates this human. It's not, it, it's sort of this non-binary human being. And the human is alone. And the divine says, it's not good for the human to be alone. And lots of terrible things and terrible readings of that have have sort of created a hierarchy between male and female, all that's garbage. But the truth is, it's not good for humans to be alone. If you leave Tom Hanks on a deserted island, he will turn a volleyball into a friend. You are not meant to be alone, alone. And help is about belonging. There's this great line in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. And here's what makes the line so great. If you were to study the, the whole context of the first letter of 1 Corinthians, you realize this was, 
this was a, just a group of people who were struggling. They were struggling to be united together. They were struggling to pull in the same direction. They had some mistrust of each other. Some people were dating their mother-in-law. It was a really, really weird situation for everybody. And they, they, didn't, they didn't really get it. And Paul writes them this letter, and he's trying to sort through all the things that are splitting them apart. And one of the things that were splitting them apart is who had the coolest gifts? Who was the most talented? Who, who could do really neat things that were better than the other neat things other people can do? It was you know, turning it into a little bit of a competition. There was this thing between the rich and the poor where the rich were trying to show off what they had and, and not share. Paul writes them, and he says, look, here's what you need to know. When, when you're doing this, pulling away from one another, what you're not aware of is that you actually are the body of Christ. Great Christian saint, Teresa of Avila said, Christ has no body but yours, no hands and feet on earth but yours, no eyes but yours, no mouth but yours. That somehow when you gather together, you become a tangible rep representation of the body of Jesus in the world. And here's what he says in, in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12. You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. Did you catch that? You are the body of Christ and you belong to one another. And then he goes on to say, and I want to show you the most excellent way that works out. Not in arguments, not in domination, not in who has more money or who has more status or who has more power or more talent. You are the body of Christ, and here's the way it works out. That, that if you can speak in all sorts of flowery languages, but you don't have lungs, it's like lungs, that also is important, but love. You are a clanging gong and a crashing cymbal. But ultimately, if you have all of the things, and yet you don't engage the people around you in love, it's really kind of pointless because when you tear it all away, when you move it all apart, you have faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Don't you like that? Like there's faith, hope, and love, but really the only thing you need to get you through is love. Paul is calling that community to belonging. And that's the regular thing I wanna be calling us to as a community. And by the way, whether you are physically in this room or whether you are watching us online, you are Grace Point Church. You, you are, and you belong. And as we've been wrestling with how we move our community forward in our leadership conversations, um, part of that has been we want to create more opportunities for you to get to know each other. We want to create more opportunities for you to realize the, the, who you belong with and to and in community with. Um, who you should be asking help from. Because my assumption is that to be a part of a community means that asking for help in this space, whether it's an ear to listen, whether it's a shoulder to cry on, whether it's somebody to help you carry a heavy load, whatever that looks like, that this is a safe place to do that. And when you seek help in a community like this, the first response will not be, well, why can't they figure it out? Why can't they just, I carry all this on my own. Why can't they carry it? No, no, no. In a community like this, we have this understanding that we really belong to each other, that we really are together in this, whatever this is. Because this, depending on the day of the week, looks really different, doesn't it? Whatever the this is that you're wrestling with, we are together in it. You're not alone. 
And if you want to belong here, the real good news is you already do. You don't have to fill out an application. You're in. Are you with me? Let's pray. God, I'm unbelievably grateful for this community where belonging is not negotiable, where there is space for all of us in our complexity, in our confusion, in our in-processness, that there is space here. So give us the courage to be a community where help and asking for help and offering help is normalized. Where no one sheds tears alone, where no one celebrates alone, where we truly understand that we are the body of Christ and parts of each other. And for that, we are extraordinarily grateful. Thank you.